Cool. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is JT Outlaw. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the creative director here at Restoration. And um, it's my pleasure today um, to be able to walk you through Psalm 1. Um, psalm 1 is my absolute favorite psalm. When Chris told me that, or when Chris asked me to preach, uh, when he volunteered me that I'd be preaching this week, um, I told him, I was like, absolutely, I'll do it as long as I can preach on Psalm 1. I was like, is that going to mess up the flow of Psalms since we're going through the whole book and we're not starting in the beginning? And he said, nope, that's fine. You can have Psalm 1. And uh, so here we are. Um, so when I was a child, um, my grandfather, he planted a huge, huge garden. Um, he planted it in really tall containers. He actually took some of the, like, food-grade 55-gallon barrels, and he cut them in half, and then he planted all sorts of vegetables in these barrels, and he just lined them down his yard, um, and he made it where you could really walk in between the barrels, and you were just surrounded by produce. And um, they were filled with tomato plants and bell peppers and banana peppers and cucumbers and squash and everything that you would want to get from a summer harvest, right? Uh, the plants, they were just absolutely prolific. He was a master gardener. Um, and me being very, very small at the time, um, I remember being, you know, four, five years old, and I can't remember much else from that age, but I can remember my grandfather taking my hand and walking me down the line. And as we walked down the line, very, very early in the morning before it just got blisteringly hot, he would let me pick whatever I wanted to pick from, from the plants. Um, and me being four or five and loving tomatoes, loving cucumbers and all these other things, I would pick it and take a bite and put it in the basket and pick and take a bite and put it in the basket. Um, so when we got to the house, we would end up with all these vegetables that were half eaten, um, and I had a full belly. That was my breakfast for the day, um, but I loved it. Um, it's one of my, my best memories, and uh, my grandfather, he was a product of the Depression. He was born in the mid-20s, um, and uh, his father was a preacher who depended on being paid by his congregants with food. Um, they gave him chickens and other, <laughs> other means to provide for his family. And my grandfather was one of many, many kids. I don't even know how many great uncles and great aunts I had. It, it's too many to remember, <laughs> right? Um, but that's, that's what they did. So they grew a garden, and then the rest of their food was given to them by the people that attended their church. Um, so my grandfather grew up taking care of a garden, and whenever he had my dad and my dad's brothers, he continued to plant a garden. And then whenever my dad had me and I went to go visit my grandfather, the garden was still there. Um, he constantly was planting, tending, and picking this garden so that he could feed their family and in turn provide food for his neighbors, right? So I bring all of that up because of our passage today. Um, it's my opinion, and I'm not going to try to stand on a soapbox up here and, and give you my, my activist rant, but it's my opinion that consumer culture and modern agricultural practices 
have weakened our understanding of God's agricultural imagery. We read passages like Psalm 1 and the depth of this simile that we have in this passage of being described as a treat, a, a, treat, a tree that bears fruit in its season. It's completely lost on us because our understanding of apples or other fruit is, oh, we need to go to the store to get it. We don't understand the process that it takes to grow that tree, to nourish that tree, and for that tree to produce fruit. So my hope today is that as we reflect on Psalm 1, that we will see the value in slowly consuming God's word and taking our time with it so that we will leave with a better understanding of what it means for us as believers to be a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into the text. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wholeness of scripture that we have in the Bible, that we're able to read passages like this one that were written thousands of years ago, and we're able to understand depth that... um, For the original audience at the time, uh, their understanding had not been fulfilled yet. God, we're so thankful for for what we see here and what it means for us as believers um, in Jesus. God, I just ask that um, my words today would be yours and not my own, um, that the gospel would be clearly communicated, and that um, if there's anybody in the room who does not know Jesus and does not have their faith in what he accomplished for us on the cross, that they would hear the truth, that they would repent and believe and put their faith in you. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our community and the time that we all have together. And I ask all this in your name. Amen. So Psalm 1, the author here starts right off and he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So right out the gate, blessed is the man. That should sound very familiar for us if you've read scripture, right? Blessed is the man. Our first thought is probably either going to be Proverbs, or it's going to be the Beatitudes in Matthew, right? Where Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the man who, blessed is the man who, right? So immediately we recognize that this first psalm, the first psalm in this book, is a form of wisdom literature. This is setting up how we are supposed to look at the rest of the psalms. It contains insight that we would be foolish to ignore. So here we see a man who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, or sat in the seat of scoffers. And those three images that we have, a man walking, a man standing, and a man sitting, it shows progressive, um, hmm, what's the right word? It shows progressive, uh, essentially they become more okay with the sin that's being committed, right? So first they're standing and they're walking with this person. Next they're 
they're standing with the person, and then eventually they are sitting with the person at a meal, listening to what they have to say and scoffing with them in regards to the Lord. They become more and more complicit with the sin that's being committed, and they're, they're taking the wisdom from these people or the foolishness of these people that has nothing to do with God. But this man, the blessed man, does none of these things. He's never done any of these things. So what does that mean for us, <laughs> right? The first verse creates a problem for us, a very real problem for us. So according to R. Kent Hughes in his commentary, this is a problem because the grammar of verse 1 requires complete obedience. The blessed man has never sinned. That's the problem. So does this psalm mean nothing for us? Because we've all sinned, whether you're willing to admit it or not. We've all walked in the counsel of the wicked at some point. Some of us may have even stood with sinners and, and discussed sinful things. Other of us may have even gone so far as to laugh at someone who's trying to live a holy life as dictated by God because it looks strange to us, right? So what does that mean for us? Does the psalm not apply? Of course not. It's in Scripture. It applies to us. But how? Because we have the full knowledge of Scripture. We have the gospel. The blessed man is Jesus Jesus is the only person who has lived a perfect and sinless life. And us, as believers, if you've put your faith in Jesus, his righteousness, his perfection is counted as yours because of what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. He took the punishment that you deserve. He died in your place so that we might be able to stand holy and righteous before God. Thank God, right? Thank God that he did that for us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment that we deserved. So when we read this, first off, we should recognize that the blessed man is Jesus and his righteousness is our own. And that should cause in us, that should stir in us joy and hope because we know that, okay, the rest of this psalm applies to us because Jesus' righteousness is my own righteousness. So then we move a little bit further down into, sec into verses 3 and 4. And I'm hoping I'm going to get y'all out of here with plenty of time to enjoy eating and community and everything. This, this might be the shortest sermon you've ever heard at Restoration. So um, in verses 3 and 4, he goes on. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, okay? The author says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So this very well might be the strangest rhetorical question that you will ever hear in a sermon. But what does it mean to be a tree? What does it mean? Why is the author using this image for us? He's saying that a blessed man is like a tree. Even more so, what does it mean to be chaff, right? Who here even knows what chaff is? Okay. 
when I first read this psalm, this is a psalm that I go back to, I think, multiple times a year. I really do love this psalm because I feel like there's so much depth here that's just lost. Um, but when I first read this back when I was a very, very young believer, um, I assumed, ignorantly, that this was just the poetry part of the psalm that made it a psalm, right? This is just the flowery language that is supposed to sound really nice, and that's what makes it something that these ancient people would have sang. But the real meat of the, of the psalm is in the first two verses and the last two verses. But that's not the case. This here in verses 3 and 4, this is really the meat, this is the, the content that we need to dive into. Because there's layers here and there's understanding here that we need to know because it's very, very important. So let's break down this description. Um, they should really cause a deep reflection for us. And ultimately, these two verses affirm what the author told us to do directly before in verse 2, which is to meditate on this day and night. If you're blessed, if you're in Jesus, if you're walking in the way of the Lord, you're called to meditate on Scripture day and night. And that's what these two verses help us do. So my dad um, did not have the green thumb that my grandfather had. Um, I think my grandfather worked it out of him um, at a young age, tending to the garden that my grandfather kept, so much so that my dad really didn't care to keep a garden when I was growing up. Um, but he did plant an apple tree in our backyard. And um, I waited years for those apples to show up. Years. I'm not even joking. And they never produced, ever. That tree became just another tree in our backyard. Um, and seemingly, my dad, and by proxy me, because I was his son and he made me do a lot of it, I had done everything I needed to do for this apple tree to produce fruit, I thought. It grew bigger, it grew stronger, the leaves didn't wither, the fruit never showed up. And it wasn't until I got much older that I realized that fruit trees are fickle. Fruit is not guaranteed. A tree can grow big and strong, but fruit may never show up unless the conditions are nearly perfect for that tree. Because that tree's using its own energy to produce that fruit, right? So why would it waste energy? Why would it expend energy that it needs to survive to create something that's not really beneficial for the plant? It truly is a miracle that anything on earth grows. <laughs> I mean that seriously. It truly is a miracle that God sustains us at all. So let's look at this description and let's take it line by line and break it down so that hopefully we can understand the weight of what is being said here in Psalm 1. So first, we see that this tree is planted. It didn't grow randomly. This isn't a random occurrence. It was planted by someone, right? The verb is active. 
It was planted in a place for a purpose. That should give us hope. The very first thing, it's planted. That means God is in control. If we are the tree, that means God has put us where he wants us to be. Again, thank God. Thank God that he planted that seed in us that has grown and matured, right? It was nothing that we did. A seed does not plant itself. A seed is planted. And he's planted us on his foundation, which leads us to the second description. It was planted by streams of water. Again, if you're familiar with imagery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that should start ringing some bells, right? Streams of water. This tree has a constant source of water that allows it to grow. And it's not just growing above the ground. When you plant anything, if it has a water source nearby, those roots are going to run deep. It is going to grow deeper and deeper and deeper and get a sure, solid foundation so that whenever it starts to grow above ground, it's strong and it can handle anything that's thrown at it. So that stream of water, that imagery that should, we should recognize, Jesus talks about it himself, right? When he's talking to the woman at the well, what does he tell her? He says, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I offer, you'll never thirst again, right? That's the water that planted us. Jesus is the stream. Scripture is the stream that sustains us. It takes care of us. It gives us the nutrients that we need. It, it gives us everything that we need. This is what we should be running back to. Our roots should be planted in Scripture. The next description is that it yields fruit in its season. This does not say it might yield fruit like the tree that my dad planted. It might yield fruit. It didn't. This is very clear. It's an imperative. It's a command. The tree is going to yield fruit at the right time, but it's going to yield fruit. It's not an option. For a man clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that fruit is not an option. It's a command. We aren't told what the fruit is. We, we don't know. Is it referring to the fruit of the Spirit like we see later in the New Testament? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't say. But what we do know is that as children of God, bearing fruit is part of the family business. That's what we are expected to do as believers, right? In the book of Matthew alone, Jesus himself refers to bearing fruit 12 different times in just the book of Matthew. If you look elsewhere in the New Testament, there are other places where fruit bearing is referred to. You have Galatians 5.22, you have Ephesians 5.9, you have Philippians 1.11, Colossians 1.10, James 3.17. That's just to name a few. There are so many places in Scripture where bearing fruit is talked about over and over and over again. 
So it must be pretty important, right? Fruit is of the utmost importance to God. So much so that we have the parable of Jesus cursing the fig tree because it didn't produce fruit. Now, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail, but, but truly, fruit is important to Jesus. Fruit is important to the Father. We should be producing fruit. And if you're not, that's a hard question that you need to ask yourself. Why am I like the tree that JT's dad planted? <laughs> right? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Why am I not bearing fruit? Was I planted by streams of water? That's something we've got to wrestle with. I know I did when I was preparing for today. The final description that we're given in verse 3, it really provides hope for the weary-hearted. Its leaf does not wither. That's a promise. Its leaf does not wither. And it's not referring to seasonal change, right? It's not the leaf that falls away in the fall, the trees bare in the winter, grows back in the spring, beautiful. That's not the picture that's presented here. The withering leaf that's talked about here is a leaf that withers in drought. If you are a tree that has been planted by streams of water, even in hard, difficult seasons, you are still being sustained because you can go here for your hope. Instead of depending on the world around you for your hope, you can go here and you can find it. And that's great news. That's great news for us. So as we finish up this description of the tree, we're going to come back a little bit later to two different points. We're going to talk about them a little bit more. We're going to talk about fruit a little bit more later, so I want you to keep that kind of in the back of your mind. And then we're going to talk about the final line of verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. So let's just put that in our back pocket. We'll come to that in a little bit. And let's move on and let's talk about verse 4. It's very short, very succinct, but very clear. In verse 4, the author describes the wicked as chaff. Now, if you're like me, when I first read verse or when I first read Psalm 1, granted, I also thought that verses 3 and 4 were just the flowery poetry parts, but I didn't really know what chaff was. I read it and I was like, "Oh, there's another one of those Bible words that I don't really have the time to look up. I'll take care of that later." I had no clue what chaff was. Found out later that it has to do with wheat production, right? So who here has grown wheat before? Just to show of hands. That's kind of what I expected. Actually, I'm a little surprised you haven't, Brian. But, um, <laughs> so who here knows someone who has grown wheat? Show of hands. Just a few people, okay? So you might know what chaff is probably know what chaff is, but for the rest of us, we might read this and go, I, I don't know anything about wheat production. I don't know what chaff is. I don't know how this works. Explain it to me. So 
I went at the time and I looked up the dictionary definition of chaff. I'm not going to read that to you because it made things way more confusing for me. So I went to the real source of knowledge for any modern person, YouTube. I wanted to see what chaff was. I wanted to know where it comes from, what this process looks like, and boy, were there a lot of videos on YouTube. But I found this one guy, um, this poor, poor man. Um, he was just a casual gardener, and he starts the video off by saying that he wanted to plant some wheat in his backyard just to see what it was like and hopefully have enough wheat to produce flour to bake a loaf of bread. Um, he got in way over his head because he actually started by planting his wheat crop in the fall, which is the worst time to plant it because it takes your production from four months, if you planted it in the spring, to eight months because it's uh, essentially hibernating during the winter. It's, it's, it's stops growing. So it took him eight months to grow this wheat in his backyard until it reached full maturity. He then took the time to cut the wheat down, and then he started the labor-intensive process of separating the wheat berries, which are on the top of the wheat stem, from the chaff, which is also on top of the wheat stem. So he had these two parts. He, he cut it all down. He pulled the head of the wheat off and threw it in a, in a bowl, essentially. So in the bowl contained the fruit that he actually wanted to keep so that he could grind it into flour. And then he had the chaff, which were all the spindly little wispy leafy bits, right? And he doesn't want that in his, his bread. Nobody wants that in their bread. So he started the process of separating it. And the way that he did that was he set up a box fan on the end of a table. He took the bowl, and over the course of, no joke, several days, you watch this guy's clothes change because it's taking him that long to process all of this wheat. He takes a handful of the wheat, and he kind of tosses it up in the air like this in front of the fan so that the wheat berries, which are heavy enough, fall back down into his hand or into the bowl below it, and the chaff, which is light enough, blows away. It's carried away by the wind. Days it took him. He eventually separated it all. He ground it up, and he made approximately two and a half loaves of bread. It took him nine months to get that. God chose this description as the process for the wicked in this psalm. Why? Why did he choose that process? It's a lot of work for very little, right? The chaff is driven away. The chaff has no root. The chaff is light. It has no fruit. It's driven away. It's fascinating and it's terrifying that this is how God describes the wicked. They provide nothing for him. Nothing. 
they're simply just driven away. It has no purpose, it has no roots, it has no fruit. It's only separated from the fruit so that it can be destroyed. It's the absolute opposite description of the tree. Right? The tree is tended to, it's sustained, it's nourished, it's taken care of, it bears fruit, it glorifies God. God spends all this time growing the wheat so that he can take the fruit from it simply for the chaff to be driven away. So then we go to the final two verses. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The final scene that we're given, and it really kind of starts in verse 4, is the day of judgment. Right? It's pretty clear what's being talked about here. The wicked will perish, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous who will stand as a congregation at the foot of his throne. Thank God for those of us that are counted as righteous, right? We won't be driven away as chaff. Instead, we're able to stand firm on the ground that we were planted in and glorify God on the day of judgment. Thank God for his mercy and his grace on us. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, then you are walking the path of the wicked. Right now, you are chaff, not the wheat berries. You are not fruit that God is after if you don't have your faith in him today. So I'm just asking you, repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus and believe. Please, if you want to talk about this more, please come up to me after the service. Please, I would be thrilled to talk to you about the gospel, to explain it to you, to pray with you, and answer any questions you might have or try to. But for those of us that are believers, what should we make of this psalm, right? It gives us a lot of hope because we can, we can stand firm in the fact that we are a tree but like I asked before what does it mean to be a tree you just stay in the same place and expect growth to occur not really no I think we finish this psalm by considering the two points that I mentioned earlier so first we need to elaborate a little bit on fruit right Fruit determines the health of a tree. Like I said before, if you consider yourself a tree, but you can't look at your life and see any fruit, you're not healthy. You're not serving the purpose that God gave you. A fruit-bearing tree requires near-perfect conditions. But thank God that we have a perfect stream of water that's nourishing us. 
but we really need to consider the purpose of the fruit, right? Fruit does not benefit the tree at all. It's energy expended to produce something that doesn't really do anything for it. It either drops off or it gets eaten. It benefits those who sit and rest underneath the tree. In the shade of the tree, the righteous and the unrighteous consume the fruit. So what is our fruit supposed to be? When we look at our lives, what's the fruit that we're supposed to be able to offer? It's caring for those around us. The way Jesus has cared for us first. The way the perfect God in heaven came down and lived as a man. How degrading for God to come in the form of us. And yet he did it. He did it. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. And now we are nourished by the stream of water that flows forever. Our spiritual fruit should impact those around us. That's what we should be asking ourselves. Every day, when we're at work, while we're at home with our families, while we're with our wives or husbands or children or grandchildren, we should be asking ourselves, am I impacting these people spiritually? You may provide for them, but that's only temporary, right? Are these people around us able to be nourished from the spiritual fruit that we're producing for them? Or is the fruit spoiled? We should seek to bear fruit, hoping that the seeds within the fruit that we bear would find fertile ground in the hearts that God prepared beforehand. So I'm going to say that one more time, okay? We should seek as believers to bear fruit, hoping that the seeds within the fruit that we grow would find fertile ground in the hearts of the people around us that God prepared beforehand. Secondly, we must ponder that in all we do, we prosper. He says that right at the end of verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. So what is that talking about? Is that kind of the prosperity gospel? Should we assume some sort of financial gain if we're producing fruit? Absolutely not. <laughs> Look at the life that Jesus led. There was no financial gain to be had. Oftentimes, the disciples did not know where their next meal was going to come from. So we can't look at prosperity in that light. That is not what's being said here. The prosperity that we have is referring to spiritual prosperity. We will prosper in all things because the things that we desire, the prosperity that we desire, comes from the stream. It comes from what Jesus desires. If we continue to go back 
to our source of nourishment, to Jesus and his scriptures, we will be nourished in the fruit that we produce. Again, this is not a maybe. The fruit that we produce will make an impact. We will see people's lives changed by the gospel. It's not an if, it's a when. We will prosper in all things because the things we desire are God's own desires. Namely, that trees would continue to grow and bear fruit for the benefit of others and his glory. So as we wrap up today, let's take some time to really meditate on this psalm. To meditate on verses 3 and 4, the imagery that we see here. What kind of tree are you? Are you a tree at all? Are you more like the chaff that's going to be driven away? Are you more like the counsel of the wicked or the way of the sinners? Or a, are you offering a seat to scoff? Or do you find your righteousness in God? In Christ and what he's accomplished for you. Let's go be trees. Let's seek to encourage each other and nourish each other in the stream of water that we're given in scripture. Let us come together as a community and let's really be a grove of fruit for the rest of Wilmington around us. May our spiritual fruit provide truth and sustenance to those who need it, God, we just ask that you would help us be light-bearing representatives of your kingdom. Let's pray.